If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, the UK's best-selling history magazine. I'm David Musgrave. Welcome to this new four-part podcast mini-series where we'll be bringing you a medieval masterclass with the historian Dan Jones. It was first recorded as a virtual lecture series in the late summer of 2021, when Dan's book, Powers and Thrones, A New History of the Middle Ages, had just been published. Over the course of four episodes, I asked Dan to take us on a journey through four ages of medieval history, from the collapse of the Western Roman Empire through to the dawning of Renaissance ideas and religious revolution. In this first episode, Dan charts the beginnings of medieval Europe, from the waning of Roman power in the West to the emergence of so-called barbarian realms that laid the foundations for the European kingdoms. To kick things off, I asked Dan to give us an introduction to the topic. So that's what you're going to hear next. And then Dan and I pick through some of the main themes that he's highlighted. I should say that if you want to watch the video of our conversation and enjoy the extended audience Q&A that we had in the live masterclass session, you can still do that at our website at historyextra.com forward slash video. You do need to be a website subscriber to access that content. Anyway, back to Dan to introduce us to the age of Imperium 
from AD 410 to AD 750. Today we're, to, we're talking about the early Middle Ages. That's the, the most common um, name for this period of, of the broader Middle Ages. Let's say a few words before we even begin that on what the Middle Ages are. Where does that idea come from? One of the first uses of the term the Middle Age, it's not a plural at this point, but it's, it's uh, still a singular, is John Fox, Fox's Book of Martyrs, 1563, book of ecclesiastical history written uh, at the, in, in the heat of the Reformation. John Fox, when he was writing that book, said, you can divvy up history into three big chunks. He said, there's the primitive time, and that's effectively the, what we might call the ancient or classical world. Uh, and in, in Christian ecclesiastical terms, it's the time when Christians were persecuted uh, by, by Romans and other authorities around the Mediterranean world. He said there's also the modern age. That's the age we're living in now, or that the Fox was living in now. Um, the age of the Reformation, an age of changing ideas and changing technologies and changing views and visions of the world. And he said and sort of lumped in between these two bits. So that's between the collapse of the Roman Empire and uh, the 16th century is the Middle Age. And he doesn't elaborate enormously about what that Middle Age is, but he seems very clear that between the death of the classical world and the rise of the reformed, Protestantized, quote-unquote, modern world, this is a distinct historical period. And we still live with that, um, that idea of the Middle Ages today. For scholars to work with a, a thousand years of history, 11, or in, in the terms that I've defined it, between 410 and 1527, 1117 years of history, that's, that's a bit much um, for scholars to group themselves coherently. So that we tend to have these subdivisions of the Middle Ages. Broadly speaking, the early Middle Ages, which we're going to discuss today, the high Middle Ages, the later Middle Ages. So let's, let's think about what the early Middle Ages consist of. When are we going to date them? Well, we can date the early Middle Ages if we want to fix on a particular date from the year 410 AD. 410 is when Alaric and the Goths sacked Rome. The great sack of Rome, which was viewed by many people around the world, as a, a, around the Mediterranean world, certainly, those who heard about it, as a cataclysmic moment of juddering historical importance, which even if it did not destroy the Roman Empire at a stroke, had such devastating symbolic power that it heralded a uh, historical change in eras. The closest thing probably in our lifetimes uh, are the 9-11 attacks on New York City. If you think about the uh, the, the death toll, the, the terrible destruction that was wrought on New York and uh, on, on the Pentagon on 9-11, uh, it does not add up to the same even it's a different order of magnitude than, let us say, the First or Second World War or, or many other wars of the 20th and 21st centuries. Nevertheless, the impact of that moment seemed to herald uh, uh, a terrible blow to the United States as world superpower and the, the changing of an era. Think about the, the sack of Rome in 410 in those terms. So that's where we're going to start talking about the Middle Ages. Now, in order, if that is indeed our starting point in thinking about the Middle Ages, we have to then consider what was this Roman world that, that produced through its collapse the Middle Ages about? What was it like? What were its features? What were its um, special attributes? What was its legacy to the Middle Ages? 
That's a very important question, uh, which we can unpack uh, over the course of the hour. I think in in very brief terms, what had Rome been? Well, at its peak in this early 2nd century AD, Rome was an empire that stretched from the borderlands with Persia all the way to Britannia uh, in the West, thought to be the most westerly uh, landmass in the world, in the known world. Territorially vast. It was the only empire that uh, that conquered the entire land fringe of the Mediterranean Sea. It was an empire w- whose army was probably even including the modern American army. Uh, if if we make, if we relativize the terms, probably the the best funded and most sophisticated army of all time in comparison to other powers of the day. Um, it had a code of citizenship which bound uh, certain people within the Roman Empire to the imperial cause, an abstraction as well as a territorial reality. It was a slave state. It was one of the few pure slave states in history. If we think about a, a state which has slavery embedded institutionally into its very essence. We're probably talking about ancient Greece, ancient Rome, uh, the antebellum American South, the the New World Caribbean. There are not many other purely slave states to be found in history. However, uh, the legacy of slavery from the Roman Empire, even after it broke up, was something that was very important in the Middle Ages. The Roman Empire had a dominant language, an imperial language, Latin, uh, which also became a very important language in the West, in the Middle Ages. It had a cult of of imperium, of an emperor or emperors who embodied as well as controlling the empire itself. All of these and and more features of, of, of Rome produced a legacy which was to be reckoned with in different ways throughout the Middle Ages. However, in 410... Rome was sacked, and in the 5th century, uh, the Roman Empire in the West fractured and began to break up. So, in thinking about the Middle Ages, what I've tried to do in the first part, the first quarter of Powers and Thrones, what we're going to do over the course of this masterclass, is think about what were the first states that emerged from the collapse of the Roman Empire. Well, there were three or four of them that we can talk about. The Roman Empire didn't collapse wholesale. It collapsed in the West it retrenched in the East. Now, in the West, what partly caused and partly replaced the Roman Empire um, were, so what partly caused the collapse of the Roman Empire were the incursions of what the Romans called barbarian tribes. Tribes without a literate culture, who largely moved in, in waves east to west, who made incursions into Roman territory, and after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, began to carve out um, states of their own. Some of those tribes, their names will still be familiar to us today. The Franks, whose lands became France. Uh, The Burgundians, uh, the Kingdom of Burgundy, or Duchy of Burgundy as it became, now a a region of France. Um, The Lombards, whose kingdom of Lombardy is now part of Italy. There are others whose names are less well-reflected in modern states, the the Goths of various stripes, Ostrogoths, Visigoths, and so on, the Suevi and others, uh, the Vandals in North Africa. So there were barbarian kingdoms that replaced parts of the Roman Empire. Now, of course, the Roman Empire 
as a whole did not collapse. It retrenched in the east around New Rome, Nova Roma, Constantinople, today Istanbul. So we also need to think about the state that became known as Byzantium. It was still being called Rum or versions of Rome during the crusading era because there was still a sense that this was uh, the, the shrunken rump form of the once uh, much mightier Roman Empire. But, but Rome by no means went away. And when we're thinking about the early Middle Ages, we have to consider the, the changed nature and shape of Byzantium and uh, the, the changes that were wrought in Byzantium Byzantium, uh, which had lasting implications all the way through the Middle Ages, and indeed can still be felt in certain areas of our life in the West today. Then we need to think about the Arabs, the first Muslims. At the beginning of the 7th century AD, a new religious, political, military power uh, burst out of Arabia, and the first Arab caliphates have a a very strong claim uh, themselves to be considered inheritor states of Rome. Um, we think about the extent of the uh, the Umayyad and um, well, the Rashidun Umayyad caliphates through to the eighth century. We're talking about an empire that that took up vast swathes of the Middle East, the Near East, uh, Northern Africa, and parts of Europe that later in the Middle Ages were Christianized. The islands like Sicily and Um, most of, if not all of, Hispania, modern-day Spain and Portugal. We'll probably stop with the Arabs today. We might just delve into the history of the Franks, although I think that that will probably be our starting point for the masterclass next week. But that in the round are the scope of our terms. We're going to be looking at the the early Middle Ages. We're going to be thinking about what Rome left the Middle Ages, and we're going to be looking in in broad strokes at the barbarian kingdoms, the uh, the retrenched rump state of Byzantium and the Arab conquests, uh, which dramatically changed the landscape and the religious world of what had once been the Roman Empire. So um, that, I hope, gives you a flavour of what we're going to be talking about today. Thanks for that intro, Dan. Um, So in your book, Powers and Thrones, uh, the first section is called Imperium 410 to 750 AD, and and that's what we're talking about today. Now, look, I don't want to get... uh, all trade descriptions with you, um, but you do spend quite a long time, certainly in the book, uh, in the chapter in the book, uh, talking about what happened before 410 AD, uh, so the uh, uh, the events of the Roman Empire itself. Can you give us a little sense, therefore, of the difference in uh, power holding and the power structure uh, between, say, 200 AD and the middle of the 5th century? Yeah, if we look at the Roman Empire under Trajan or Hadrian, um, when it's when there are Roman legions in the pushing into what's now Scotland, um, the, the Roman Empire has and, and and modern Romania as well as all the way through to the fringes of you know, Black Sea, Caspian Sea, um, the the entire uh, coast coastline of the Mediterranean. But this is this is an extraordinarily massive empire. Uh, in which not only the military, but a a common set of partly values and partly institutions are holding together a a, a truly astonishing and in many ways unprecedented, uh, historically unprecedented empire in the the time that's lasted, in the the strength with, with which it has been defended. 
after or around the um in the fourth century a couple of, of big things start to change which which loads the game against the continuing possibility of a Roman Empire on this scale. Framing this time is we can see uh, we can see climate change playing a role, not man-made climate change of the, the sort that uh, is we talk about so much in 2021, but cyclical regional climate change. So historians uh, of climate talk about a Roman climate optimum, which had lasted. Uh, sort of through the peak of Roman power, from about the 1st century BC until about the 3rd century AD. It's, it's, it's hard to date very, very precisely, but this has been a time of relatively warm and wet weather around the Mediterranean. Very propitious for agriculture, and therefore uh, ensured that, by and large, the Roman Empire was, it was able to sustain itself. There was a downturn in temperatures around the third century, which started to make conditions more challenging for the empire in very, very basic terms to feed itself. As well as that, there was a much more severe and localised climate episode far away from the Roman Empire, far, far away, at the other end of the Eurasian steppe in, in northern, roughly now northern China, where a tribe that became known as the Huns, or the Hun, uh, suffered a mega drought of such severity that it hadn't been seen for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. And the Huns were forced to move from their ancestral tribal homes and start looking for territory further to the west. As the Huns moved, they displaced other tribes who became known as the Goths and the Alans. I say became known as because when we're talking about these, what we'll call the barbarian tribes, we're using the language essentially of the Romans and of literate Roman chroniclers. We have we have pressure. There's a, a massive imbalance in the source material that we have uh, about these people. But those are the terms we we will use because they're conventional. So the, the mass migrations that were set in in chain uh, ended around, or, or rather culminated around the end of the 4th century with the approach of waves of what we could call, if we wanted to be mildly controversial and use the modern terms, climate refugees on the fringes of the Roman Empire, particularly in the East. And they start to eventually cross the rivers, cross cross the borders into the Roman Empire. And that, again, that similarly to the, the climate framing, that has a very destabilising influence on the Roman Empire. As well as that, there are growing political problems within the empire, fracturing power. It becomes very difficult for um, for totally centralised power to be operated with one emperor controlling this entire um, massive, massive empire. So the, the office of the emperor had been split into two and sometimes into four, and there were growing problems politically within the empire. So all of that leads to uh, a series of rolling political crises culminating in the 5th century, 410, the sack of Rome, and then the the splintering and the jettisoning of parts of the Western Roman Empire. So the first to be jettisoned is Britannia. Um, Troops are drawn down to be brought into Gaul to deal with unrest caused by barbarian incursions in Gaul. 
Britannia geographically is the is the furthest flung bit of the empire and therefore it's the easiest to cut loose it's separated by the channel of course it's very far away uh the building of the two walls the antonine wall and hadrian's wall show that it, uh, tell us that it was uh, challenging to defend on its furthest borders there was the beginnings of waves of um barbarian or uh, tribal incursions by sea for you know the Angles and the Saxons, the Jutes. This is the time when the first of these waves of, of North Sea migrations are coming to, to Britannia. So Britannia is cut loose around the same time that Rome is sacked, 409, 410, 411. And then in, in places like Gaul and Hispania, we start to see uh, waves of barbarian incursions into those parts of, of the Roman world. And Bit by bit, Roman authority is chipped away, such that by the time we get to, let's say, 476, when we see the last of the recognised Roman emperors, when we get to that point, you can sort of of draw a line. um, If you drew a line down from Denmark that was, was almost straight down to about Venice, everything to the west of that line was was becoming increasingly untenable, uh, for the Roman Empire to hold. And the centre of power was, was moving indisputably to Constantinople. Now, it's arguable that the centre of power had long since moved um, to Constantinople and that Rome itself had ceased to be meaningfully the capital of the Roman Empire a long time previously. It had moved around. You know, the capital had been in, uh, there'd been capitals in Milan, in Trier, in Ravenna. So, really, the centre of power since the 4th century, uh, since Constantine had been Constantinople. But, uh, but by the end of the 5th century, the Western Roman Empire is in a state of, of deep disrepair. And we're, we're beginning to see the emergence of what become known as the barbarian kingdoms. Thanks for that. So, so the British angle is really interesting, isn't it? Because, um, as you said, I think it was the Emperor Honorius who uh, who famously sent the letter to the British saying, you've got to look to your own defences. And that was sort of uh, essentially the precursor to the end of, of Roman involvement in, in Britannia. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in, in what you said about sort of the climatic framing of the events of this episode. Obviously, we worry about climate a lot today, and as you said, uh, and, and rightly so. Uh, and we know about these climatic changes that happened in the period you were talking about because of recent scientific developments in uh, archaeological techniques and such like that can tell us these sorts of things. I guess it's less easy to see through the documentary sources. Um, so scholars of a uh, hundred years ago uh, who didn't have access to these new scientific techniques wouldn't necessarily have been able to make the same sort of arguments that you've been making. But I wonder, is there an, is there a danger that we uh, overrate the climate side of things because we are worrying about it today? I think there absolutely is. Um, and it raises a really fundamental question about what we are doing as historians and what we what we think we should be doing as historians. And that's something that writing this book I've uh, I've wrestled with quite a lot. There, there, there are schools of thought. So there are some people who would, and I'll, I'll caricature these the positions if, if you don't mind. One position about the, the practice of writing history might be the historian must aim for absolute objectivity. The historian must take their 
present-day concerns completely out of their work. The historian must um, must remove all of their biases. The historian must be a, a neutral um, observer and presenter of the facts. Okay, that, that's one way of, of approaching history. It's often implied in the way we teach history in schools because we, in order to make children, students understand what historical bias is and means, we try and set up the historian as the reverse. You say, you as the historian must be must try and free yourself from bias completely and only recognise it in other people and your sources. Okay, that, that's one position. There's another position, also very easy to caricature, which is, or was loosely called, the postmodernist position, which says... Well, actually, objectivity is completely impossible. And all texts and all authors bring with them a set of biases which are inescapable. And, um, and in its most pessimistic conclusion, that's, that says history is pointless. Um, or in its most kind of carefree conclusion, it says, so just do what you want and, and accept the fact that you're never going to write objective history. Okay. Obviously, those are both silly positions. And I, but I, so and I, I think, and the older I've gotten, the more history I've written, the more I've come to think that we, we sit pretty squarely in the middle. And you just recognise that history, the practice of history, is a conversation. It's a dialogue between past and present. And that actually one of the points of doing history is to, um, is to think about the relationship between our own times and past times. And so, to bring it back to the question of climate, in, in this book, I'm, I haven't obsessed about climate or gone looking. This isn't a, a climate history of the Middle Ages by any means whatsoever. But it's one of a range of factors, along with pandemics and migration and technological change and global networks, that I think are helpful to us to have in our minds as we look at the Middle Ages in order that we, we find something familiar when we step into this world, and we find a reason for going looking into the Middle Ages. Um, so to, re to return even more to the case in point, was, you know, was a climate crisis the defining reason for the collapse of the Roman Empire in the beginning of the Middle Ages? No. But since we're able to measure climate change in a way that hasn't been possible before, and since we're acknowledging that it's important to think about climate change as a, as a meaningful um, mover of history, given that it's going to be so important in the 21st century and we ought to be thinking about it from lots of different angles. I don't think it's unreasonable to just chart the, the long-term ebbs and flows of the, the, the global or certainly the Western regional climate over the course of the Middle Ages, because firstly, it happened, even if people at the time weren't quite able to see it in the way that we can in retrospect and secondly it's 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 good because it enables us as we as we read as we write history to to take new views on what we see in the world around us today uh well it's lucky it's good that uh, you don't um, think that history is pointless because that would obviously rather dampen the spirit of this master class um but moving on, one of the things that, that, I, that I particularly enjoyed in your book was, was some of the characters uh, who you sketch out, particularly the Roman emperors. So, so my next question is, would you say that being a Roman emperor in the declining years that we're talking about in the, in the 5th century was a reliable and secure profession? 
Um, no, no, I don't think I don't think it was. And I think increasingly uh, it's a slightly pathetic position. And what we certainly see during the fifth century is a succession of people who aren't actually the emperor, but who are essentially wielding power. Um, most famously, Stilicho. But who are tr- trying to hold the whole thing together, generalissimos, I suppose you could call them. Um, and the days of, well, Augustus himself, or the you know the, the emperors of the first century, all the way through to uh, maybe Marcus Aurelius, those days are long gone by the time we get to the fourth century, and uh, it becomes increasingly hard to find memorable. Uh, let alone successful Roman emperors, um, who, or rather re- emperors who were memorable for their competence rather than their absolute sort of ridiculousness. Um, it becomes ever harder to find those as as we move from the third, fourth, move into third, fourth, fifth centuries. The, the, the legacy of Rome over the medieval imagination was extremely powerful. Now, it's powerful in different ways in different places. So, if we look at if we look at Constantinople at Byzantium, there's a sense that the Roman Empire never really dies, or if it does, it's uh, it's either with the Fourth Crusade in 1204 or with the arrival of the Ottomans, um, because you know, if, if we've read any crusading history, what do the Seljuks who conquer Anatolia in Asia Minor? Around the time of of the first Crusade, called themselves they called themselves, or they're known as the Seljuks of Rome. This is Rome. This is still uh, this is still Rome. And emperors like you know, like Justinian in the sixth century, um, they're just, Constantinople has been the greatest city in Rome since Constantine the Great founded it in the early fourth century. So there's no reason to think that just because that sort of weird bit over there in the West and that dodgy island Britannia and Gaul and whatever have gone, there's no reason to think that Rome is is dead. They're still fighting the Persians, you know. So, so in many ways, Rome doesn't go away at all. It shifts to the East and it changes dramatically and the language eventually becomes Greek rather than Latin. Um, but it's people think of themselves as Romans. And similarly in the West, 800, Charlemagne's crowned Roman emperor by the Pope. So you have a revive, and then you have what becomes the Holy Roman Empire in the West, a revived um, pseudo-Roman state. I, I think it's it's a harder push to say that people genuinely thought of themselves as Romans in, in a sense that was continuous back to the days of Augustus under, let's say, the Holy Roman Emperors of the 13th century. You know, I, I, I think it's, it's obviously much more of a, um, a pose than a reality uh, when you get to Holy Roman Empire. Nevertheless, uh, this, this legacy, the idea of, of people as Romans... And, and, you know, in Charlemagne, when he, he goes to Rome, dresses in a toga, right? So there, there is this sense of Rome. And then, of, and then, of course, at the end of the Middle Ages, we see, uh, we see Roman as really revived. It, has, it's, it comes roaring back with, with the Renaissance. And you have people like Petrarch, crowned poet laureate, and prancing around in Rome. In, 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 but but that's, that's cosplay to a, to a large extent. 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Had Constantinople fallen to the Arabs, which it very nearly did at the beginning of the 8th century, uh, we would, uh, I think we would then definitely be thinking about the, the early Islamic Caliphate as the inherited states of Rome, but it didn't. And I think that that's an, another major reason why we don't. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Okay, so if the, if the Roman Empire sort of shifted to the east, as you say, it certainly was challenged in the west. Um, you mentioned the the Huns and the Goths in your introduction, so let's let's talk about them for a second. So if if uh, my reading of what you were saying is correct, that it's the Huns don't initially cause the downfall of Roman defences is the fact that they shift other people through, they shift the Goths through, and it's the Goths then that sort of initially start wearing down the Roman defences. Is that uh, is that the right summation of, of the argument? That's a fair, yeah, that's, that's pretty fair. Um, and, and of course, to reiterate, it's very hard to know what we're talking about. This is a big difference that uh, certainly struck me when I started writing you know, frankly speaking, when I started writing Powers and Thrones, I came at it as a late medievalist. I, you know, the, the the earliest I'd really ventured uh, was with the beginning of the Crusades, so in you know, 10th into 11th century. And the difference is in, in really knowing what happened at all between later Middle Ages where you, you can get a fair idea, and early Middle Ages, where things are very, very, very fragmentary. That, that's a big difference. So everything we say about the Huns, and indeed the Goths, uh, has to be taken with a huge pinch of salt, because um, it's not even very clear whether we're using the right term in the word Huns. There are lots of... De- and, and when we do use that term, whether we're really talking about uh, a single people are people who recognise themselves as a single people? And if so, was that linguistically or culturally or in any meaningful uh, ruled way? It's just not clear. And, and you have to rely on, on scraps of, of evidence and archaeology in order even to make a best guess. Um, but as you say, let, let's, let's do our best and say, yes, it, it, what appears to happen <coughs> is a mega drought of epic historical proportions, starts people are moving from east. And, and the Huns 
start to push out of their traditional lands and over the course of a couple of generations end up displacing other peoples to their west and a group called the Goths. But again, who are the who are the Goths? Do they recognise themselves as the Goths? Are they going around? We're the Goths. We're the Goths. Watch out for us. Uh, probably not. Even when we have individual um, sort of sub-tribal names assigned by Roman writers for these Goths, it's 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 not totally clear whether that's something that's imposed by the writers or whether there's something that's recognised by the peoples themselves. And I realise this is a mess of caveats, but it's important because it's it's important to note that we're this is a very unclear uh, period, and it's it's partly because of this that the label the Dark Ages has attached to the Middle Ages. Nick, um, the early Middle Ages is is very difficult. Often, it's very difficult often to know who or what you're talking about. But okay, so in, but in broad terms, with all those caveats done, yes, the Huns move, they move the Goth, the Alans. And eventually, the the borders of the Roman Empire um, start to see waves of would-be migrants approaching, trying to cross rivers, trying to cross borders, trying to get into the empire. Um, It's probably impossible, as I say that, not to think of modern parallels with waves of migrants trying to cross stretches of water to get into places that they think will offer them a better deal than the place they've previously been. So I just want to drill into that elephant trap of the anyone writing about this this period, basically, is that, is that you are essentially always going to be writing from the perspective of, of Rome, aren't you? Because your documentary sources are all basically the Rome Romans versus the barbarians, and they tend to be very negative about barbarians because the Romans are terrified of them or, or furious with them. Um, so I wonder, is there any way to write a history of this period from the perspective of, say, the Huns, if, if the Huns indeed were even a real bunch of people? To write from the perspective of the Huns? No, I don't think that, that that's realistically possible in a way that you could um, hand on heart, stand by it and say, I feel like this is definitively what it was like for the Huns. I think it's, But I, what I do think it's possible to do is to approach the material uh, as even-handedly as possible and as sympathetically as possible and to try almost, uh, and to try really hard to read exceptionally closely and against the grain what you're told about these people by the writers who are telling you it. If you, you know, you have to be super, super sceptical uh, when you're reading the Roman sources because, of course... Um, it's a problem. (laughs) For most Roman writers, this is a period of of destabilising, confusing, um, not very promising change and turbulence, and the world is changing and possibly collapsing around them. Um, So I think it's, it's very hard. It's very hard to totally switch the perspective However, it is, it's possible to say um, there's very likely a lot more to this than we realise. And that, that, again, is where we have to, as historians, um, embrace as, as well as recognise what we're bringing from our own experience to the material today. Uh, as we study it and and as i've sort of slightly alluded to already it 
it would be weird and quite cold and maybe even slightly psychopathic to to be writing about um, migrant crises on the borders of established ancient um, imperial, in this case, once imperial powers. Uh, it would be weird to do that without thinking, well, we, 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 we know about this because we see it today. And that's not to cast the Goths as, let's say, Afghan refugees or uh, refugees from other places trying to cross the English Channel. It's not to say they're the same thing, but it's to say, look, you don't have to um, think very hard about what the experience of people trying to cross the Channel in a rubber dinghy might be and how little one hears that experience compared to how loud one hears uh, the voice of authority um, and government in this country. You don't have to think too hard about that imbalance to import just that sense of uh, whose voice do you tend to hear most of when these kind of things happen back to the history that you read. Right. So it's it's hard to hear the voices of, of the Huns, as you've uh, as you've told us. But there is there is one Hun who we do know something about, um, and we know his name at least, Attila. Uh, in your summary in your intro, you mentioned Alaric, but uh, uh, what about Attila? Um, who was he, and where does he fit into the story? Well, Attila, we're somewhat later now, and Attila, but once the Roman Empire in the West has has started to judder and unravel it's kind of virgin territory and areas that had either been controlled directly by rome or highly influenced by rome become um up for grabs as it were and so we see the huns not only as a kind of moving force somewhere beyond the horizon but as a as a group in their own right who have a a, a short-lived um kingdom in the 5th century with several rulers, the most famous of whom is Attila. And there are great... I think one of the reasons Attila has become famous is because, yes, he did bring some uh, centralised authority and kingship to a a group that hadn't always had it when we, as we've seen them in the sources before. But there are just great pen portraits of Attila, you know, walking around, sort of rolling his eyes, this kind of imperious, uh, dangerous, very similar to the way that Genghis Khan is written about, particularly in Western sources, or indeed any any of those first Khans in the later Middle Ages. Um, just a sort of larger-than-life character who, does, who doesn't last especially long, and after whom... We we hear less and less of the Huns as as a as a terrifying, uh, apparently unstoppable force um, in Europe. Again, when I when I was writing Powers and Thrones, um, I, I wanted it to be in some ways a medieval greatest hits album, and so characters like Attila the Hun uh, are enormous fun to move a big story like this on with because we've heard of them even if we don't know mass, very much about them. And they give us kind of uh, good points of reference throughout the story to, to cling on to. And yeah, Attila's just enormous fun. We've, we've just talked quite a lot about what's happening in Western Europe, and, and we've also uh, touched a bit of, upon what's happened in Eastern Europe or in uh, in Asia, I guess. Um, but the, the map of the Roman Empire would also have included a lot of, of Northern Africa as well at, at its height. Um, so 
in your book, you focus quite a lot on Western Europe, but you do go beyond it. Perhaps you could just tell us what was going on in Africa during this period and how does that play into the story? Uh, well, in a way, a similar process has happened in Northern in Northern Africa as has happened in Western Europe in that um, there are barbarian migrations which enter previously Roman territory and hive it off from the Roman Empire. And uh, the key point is the Strait of Gibraltar. So you see the progress of the barbarian migrations kind of goes through Gaul, over the Pyrenees, uh, down through Hispania, across the Strait of Gibraltar, and then back round along the coast of Africa. And there's a Vandal kingdom sort of centred on what had once been Carthage before that was conquered by the Roman Empire. And so, yeah, so in North Africa, we see the Vandals momentarily, I think momentarily, actually, for, for generations as the uh, as the inheritor power. Um, and they are well entrenched there until they're attacked by Justinian and Belisarius uh, from the other direction in the uh, 6th century. Right, you mentioned Justinian just then, and, and I realise um, we should probably push this story along a bit. So who was Justinian? Where does he fit into the narrative you're telling us? Um, I guess that means we're going to head into Byzantium and the uh, and the Eastern Roman Empire, isn't it? Yeah, Justinian has the, the reputation as the the last great Roman emperor. And whether that's true or not, who knows? You could probably make a case for Alexius I Komnenos in the Crusades as being the last great Roman emperor, but that's not a debate I think we should probably waste our time on now. Uh, Justinian, in the 6th century AD, becomes emperor in Constantinople and is a, a magnificently larger-than-life character um, who we can put a face to uh, because he's... Uh, we can literally put a face to if you go to Ravenna and uh, the Basilica of San Vitale in, in Ravenna, you can see the one, the wonderful mosaic above the altar. You can see sort of uh, Justinian glaring down at you. Ne- and next to him is his wife, Theodora. Justinian and Theodora are a an extraordinary power couple in Byzantium. Justinian's probably greatest and most lasting achievement... Um, well, he he would have considered it, I think, in his lifetime at reconquering big parts of the Western Roman Empire for Constantinople, for what we call Byzantium. And so large parts of uh, Italy were brought back into the Roman fold. Uh, The Vandal Kingdom uh, was destroyed in North Africa and parts of that were brought back into the Roman fold. Uh, Justinian fought a series of long-running wars against the Persians in the East. Um, Actually, I think Justinian's lasting achievement to history was not that so much as his legal reforms at the beginning of his reign, um, which were undertaken by a a committee of the most brilliant and brightest uh, legal minds in the Eastern Roman Empire, led by Trebonian. And he ordered a full-scale reappraisal re-editing, codification of Roman law and Roman jurisprudence and the compilation of effectively a Roman legal textbook for students to learn. It was an enormous project of legal reform, which not only in the 6th century in Justinian's day, not only in the 6th century Justinian's day was that uh, profoundly 
important in remodeling, reshaping, redesigning Roman and how it worked, but had a legacy throughout the Middle Ages. So Justinian's codex, Justinian's rewritten code of Roman law, was sort of dusted off and uh, and was rediscovered and dusted off in the later Middle Ages in Bologna, where the first medieval university was located. And legal students, if you see pages from a later medieval copy of Justinian's Reformed Roman Laws, it'll be a tiny little bit of text in the middle of the page with a vast amount of of later medieval notation about what this law kind of meant, what its implications were in, in the world of the, you know, 13th, 12th or 13th centuries, 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, uh, Justinian's legal reforms became foundationally important for the rise of the legal profession in the later Middle Ages and were still important in the Napoleonic era. You know, the idea of the, of the Napoleonic law code of 18th, 19th century, well, that derives almost directly from Justinian. So, uh, so the we're still deeply infused, particularly less so in England, where common law is a much more important part of, of our legal system. But certainly on the continent, Roman. when we talk about Roman law, uh, we're really thinking about a tradition that extends back to Justinian in the 6th century. And, and Justinian did all that uh, whilst also having to contend with a pandemic, didn't he? The Justinianic plague, to which he lent his name, yeah. So the, the plague of Justinian which again may have some uh, origins in a sharp, short, sharp climate shocks. There seem to have been volcano eruptions uh, in the earlier so 520s, 530s. Series of um, volcanic eruptions had a temporary but uh, shocking effect on global temperatures, uh, weakened populations, and there's an outbreak of plague, which may have started uh, around Zanzibar, uh, but is spread via mercantile networks in Byzantium. And like the Black Death of the 14th century, appears to have killed millions upon millions and millions of people. Now, we have very, very, very vivid descriptions of the Justinianic plague in major cities like Antioch and Constantinople, of bodies piling up in the streets, of people, you know, cowering in their houses, of entire households dying, of, um, you know, 10,000 people dying a day, of lockdowns in these cities, everyone too scared to go out and and forbidden to do so by government edict. Um, The plague spreads as far afield as Germany, certainly. It, it, It gets deep into Western Europe. There are, there are much more severe problems of evidence with the Justinianic plague of the sixth. It's, you know, it's sometimes quoted as the, the greatest plague in human history, greater even than the Black Death. But it's very, very hard to be even slightly certain about, about that. Impressionistically, this was uh, an apocalyptic pan- feeling pandemic. But there are problems of evidence with trying to work out if one's interested in tallying how many people actually died during the Justinianic um, plague. Because in order to work it out, historians have taken evidence from the Black Death of the 14th century and tried to model it onto um, the 
likely demographic and population state of the, the wider Mediterranean world in the sixth century. So you're kind of reverse engineering all of the the um, the work on numbers. And it means that the range, and, that, and some historians are extremely sceptical about whether this really was a, a, a massive pandemic, plague pandemic, and say, well, they were probably just, you know, the deaths were in the thousands, tens of thousands. And there are others who say, no, this killed 25 million people across. So that's that's the range. I think you just have to go on the impression, which is that this was um, a shocking and very widespread uh, bubonic plague pandemic, which caused serious problems for uh, the Byzantine world. Right. So moving on from that uh, from that pandemic, um, there's there's one really big topic that we need to uh, try and dip into just a little bit in the time remaining to us in this masterclass, and that's uh, Islam and the rise of Islam. So you mentioned in your introduction that you you would contend that the Islamic caliphs uh, could be described as the inheritors of Rome. Um, so go on, just just give us a bit of a sense of how you make that argument. Absolutely, yeah, and and I think um, th- again, this is this is very contested history, and it's all, but it's contested history in a way that's um, uh, that's m- much more delicate than the contested history of uh, the Justinianic plague, for example. Since we've just been talking about it, no one cares that much ultimately. If you, Dave, say I think only twenty thousand people died in the Justinianic plague. And I say, now nah, it was 20 million. In, ultimately, we'll probably just disagree and not really care. Um, early Islamic history is a different matter altogether because um, some of the deepest sectarian, well, the deepest sectarian divide in the Islamic world stems from early Islamic, the Sunni-Shia divide stems from early Islamic history. Uh, and, I, and I say that only because I'm trying to give you a sense of why people are don't often engage too readily with early Islamic history and why, therefore, it's less well-known um, within this area of medieval history. And often it's sort of taken outside the box of medieval history and treated in its own right. But I, I think we have to consider the rise of Islam, I mean, the birth of the faith with Muhammad, and the political, territorial, military conquests of the first caliphs we have to consider that within this framework of examining uh, the inheritor states of Rome because, I mean, you, you take one look at the map and say that's the closest thing, uh, that, well, that's 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 pretty close to um, the Roman Empire. I know we, we're not going into Gaul and Italy and um, Bulgaria and Romania and so on, but the, the, the sheer territorial conquests of the early caliphs and their rise in military power and confidence uh, up to the middle of the 8th century is absolutely astonishing. Uh, As is, and and what's comparable with Rome, I think, as much as the extent of, of the conquests, is the imprint, the historical imprint that the first uh, Islamic caliphates left on the world, which we can still feel today. Because if you look at this map, if we take away uh, Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica, Hispania, you know, Iberian Peninsula, most, if not all, of the rest of the map is still predominantly 
Islamic territory. You know, these are predominant, predominantly Islamic countries. So in, in terms of religion alone, the imprint of this, this astonishing new faith empire is still profoundly seen in the world today, as is the language, you know. Um, putting aside Persia, Islam was uh, a faith bound up in language in a way that Christianity wasn't in its early stages and, and isn't today. And Islam was Arabic. You know, God spoke to Muhammad when he spoke in Arabic. And Arabic was the language, uh, by the time we get to the um, Umayyad Caliphs, Arabic was the essential language of anyone involved in the imperial project. If you want to be a bureaucrat uh, or a civil servant uh, or anyone who worked for the state in during the time of the early caliphates, you had to speak Arabic. So in the same way that Latin had been the lingua franca of the Roman Empire, Arabic suddenly took on this, this, this role. And then it, it evolved further because of the enthusiasm of uh, Islamic Arabic scholars for translating works from the classical world, Aristotle or Ptolemy or, or whatever, and preserving them in great libraries. Um, so I think that on several grounds, the early Islamic caliphates have a strong claim to be the most successful of the inheritor states to the Roman Empire. We don't often think about it in that way. In fact, we often think about it in reverse terms because it's so influenced historically by the legacy of the or the, 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 the folk memory of the Crusades, where we think, well, we tend to think of the Holy Roman Empire and the, the, the kingdoms of uh, Western Europe as being the, you know, essentially the inherited states of Rome, and then they're cast against the major Islamic powers. Seljuks and Fatimids and so on uh, during the Crusades, and because of that, it's, it's, we we don't often consider that really, in many ways, and particularly had had uh, had Constantinople fallen to the Arabs, which it very nearly did at the beginning of the eighth century, uh, we would, uh, I think, we would then definitely be thinking about the the early Islamic Caliphate as the inherited states of Rome, but it didn't. And I think that that's an, another major reason why we don't. Right, thanks, Dan. So that's been a, a, a whistle-stop tour from 410 AD, well, a little earlier than 410 AD, right through to 750, and we've covered a lot of ground there really fast. Um, would you be able to summarise where we are at 750 AD before we move on to our, our second masterclass uh, session um, so that uh, our, our listeners have got a little taste of what to expect next? I think the segue for just before 750, um, we see the, uh, the, the, the furthest, ex the fullest expression, and, or rather the furthest extent of uh, the Umayyad Caliphate when uh, Arab armies, Islamic armies, um, start coming over the Pyrenees into France and are held back at the famous Battle of Tours, 732, by Charles Martel. Uh, mayor of the, you know, a, a Frankish, a highly powerful Frankish politician. Um, 
Charles Martel is the sort of the granddaddy of the Franks and of the and particularly of the, the most famous of the, the Franks, um, Charlemagne. So the, the switch in 750, there are two things happen around 750. Um, first, the great Islamic Caliphate breaks up. And second, the Franks start their march to uh, preeminence in Western Europe, which will culminate with Charlemagne in 800, crowned as a Roman Empire uh, emperor, and putting together uh, an empire that binds, roughly speaking, France, Germany, Northern Italy, plus Belgium, Austria, Luxembourg, you know, in terms of the modern states, something that looks not unlike uh, the core of the European Union. And for a very brief moment, the Frankish king slash emperors achieve what has been impossible to almost all European statesmen with the exception of Napoleon and the, the and. EU Brussels, in holding together a broad Europe, uh, united Europe. And that takes us into a new phase of the Middle Ages, partly political, partly geopolitical, uh, but then there are other super interesting um, areas culturally uh, with the rise of, of Benedictine monasticism and Cluniac monasticism and knightly chivalry. And that phase really culminates with the Crusades. And next time, that's what we'll be talking about. We'll tell the story from the rise of Charlemagne through to uh, Innocent III and the sort of the apotheosis of the Crusading movement. So that was Dan Jones talking to me uh, in the first of our medieval masterclass series with the topic of Imperium, covering the period from AD 410 to 750 AD. And as I said in the introduction, you can watch the full video of that with the extended audience Q&A. Um, if you go to our website, historyactor.com forward slash video, though you do need to be a subscriber to access that content. Uh, the second part of our medieval masterclass series is entitled Dominion and takes us from 750 through to 1215 AD. So do please listen into that and uh, and do go to our website, History Extra, where you'll find a wealth of further medieval history content and indeed uh, several more features written by Dan Jones. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Collin. To find more of our history content and podcasts, go to historyextra.com.